trade secrets are paramount to a company's long-term success. Trusted employees are considered one of a company's most important assets. In our new virtual environment, protecting valuable IP following the resignation or termination of an employee can present a variety of new challenges. Protecting your assets is a four-part discussion which addresses a variety of concerns at the intersection of employee departures and protecting valuable company trade secrets. Topics covered will include navigating successful exit interviews, mitigating database damage and stolen property issues, assessing litigation implications from potential employee raids, and the handling of demand letters. Welcome everyone, this is Lindsay Cruiser. I am a principal in litigation and a member of the Labor and Employment Group at Choate in Boston. I am delighted to be joined by Anita Spieth, a partner in Choate's Intellectual Property Litigation Group, to talk about what you do and what issues are implicated when you receive an unexpected demand letter. We are going to jump right into it, and I want you to imagine yourself as in-house counsel at a company, and you come into your office or your virtual office at home these days, and you receive an email or letter. You open the letter and you realize that it raises three issues. I will first give a high-level summary of the issues so that we can discuss each one. Each complaint in the letter relates to some allegation of misconduct or wrongdoing at the company. The first issue in the letter is that your company has hired employees in breach of their non-compete agreements with their former employers. The second issue raised is that your company's CEO is involved in a sexual relationship with an employee. Finally, the last issue raised is that your company has not complied with established revenue recognition protocols. I'm going to ask Anita from a really high level, what is your response and how do you jump into action on these three issues? Thanks, Lindsay. First, you need to start thinking about what am I going to do with this letter? And with all of these allegations in the demand letter, what you probably need to do first is some sort of investigation. Even if the decision is not to respond to the demand letter at all, you still need to do an investigation in order to make that decision. So at a very high level, you need to figure out the scope of the investigation and who's going to be involved in doing it. And there's a few decision points along the way, which we'll discuss today. One of them is the source of the information in the demand letter. You might receive an actual demand letter that's signed, but on the other hand, you might get an email that summarizes something that came in through a hotline or an anonymous tip. You might also get a letter from an outside lawyer complaining about something, and then of course it wouldn't be anonymous. If it is anonymous, Lindsay, do you think that changes how you respond to the demand at all? Well, technically no, but it obviously is much more difficult to investigate and figure out the truths and inaccuracies of a complaint when it's anonymous, but the overarching theme remains the same. You as a company have to investigate every allegation of wrongdoing as best you can and not just turn a blind eye or do an inadequate or cursory investigation because the complaint is anonymous. I will openly acknowledge that it is much more difficult to fulfill these obligations when the complaint is anonymous, but it doesn't matter from a legal or compliance standpoint in terms of what we're conveying. To. And the main message today, which stays the same, whether it's anonymous or not, is that it's of critical importance to do an effective investigation. Let me flip it back to you, Anita. So let's say it's not anonymous. Does it matter if the complaining individual is a current employee or a former employee? 
So it's a similar answer to that question. It does not matter in the sense that you still need to investigate it no matter who made the complaint. And that's especially true if you think litigation is on the horizon. You not only need to know the facts, but you don't want to be caught flat-footed by the initiation of a litigation. As an aside, I should note that the same ideas we're discussing today in the context of a demand letter apply if you get an actual unexpected complaint in the sense that litigation has already been initiated and you only have a few weeks to file a responsive pleading. You could do the same investigation under those circumstances. But on your question, Lindsay, of who makes the demand, if you receive a demand letter, it doesn't really matter who the demand letter came from. You still need to do an investigation. If the complaining person is a current employee, of course, you have a specific set of concerns around preventing retaliation against that employee. And if the letter comes from outside counsel, then that brings with it the additional concerns that litigation may be imminent. So that is really helpful. Let me just pivot back to something you said earlier, Anita, and then ask you a question. I think the essence of what you said is that it's of critical importance to have your investigation protocols in place so that you're ready for a complaint regardless of the gravity, severity, and nature of what that complaint is. So assuming, and obviously the three things I mentioned at the beginning, you have hired employees in breach of their non-competes, your CEO is involved in a potentially inappropriate relationship with an employee, and your company hasn't complied with established revenue recognition protocols, these are three extraordinarily different issues that implicate different potential investigation protocol. Let's assume that your company has those protocols in place, Anita. With regard to the alleged hiring of employees in breach of non-compete agreements, who would be the key stakeholders to contact and who would lead this kind of investigation in your experience? Yeah, so there's at least four key categories of people to consider in an investigation. And I think this is actually true in any of these circumstances, but taking the example of hiring an employee in violation of a non-compete. First, you want to get counsel involved, and that might be in-house counsel, it could be outside counsel, often both. But you're gonna want counsel involved to protect the information you collect in your investigation as much as possible from an attorney-client privilege perspective. And you'll also want to begin marking any work product you generate as both privileged and protected by the work product doctrine because it's probably being generated in anticipation of possible litigation. And that's important because the documents you create through your own internal investigation could be the hottest things to be produced in a later litigation. So you'll want counsel involved to ensure maximum protection for investigation generated documents. So you have a lawyer on your investigation team. Second, you'll need to have a member of the senior management team internally as a point of contact to help coordinate the gathering of information and help you identify relevant sources of information. So the third category is the sources of information. You need to figure out who to speak to in order to get to the root of the matter. Depending on what's alleged, it could include just about anyone inside the company. In the case of an allegation of hiring an employee in breach of a non-compete, for example, you'd want the person who's been hired, his or her manager, potentially colleagues. It could also include an HR person involved in the hiring. And then the fourth and last category to consider in your investigation team is IT, either internally or external IT departments. Very often, in fact, pretty much always, the information you're gathering will include electronic information, emails, texts, and who knows what else. And this is particularly true now when so many of us work remotely and operate primarily by text and email. You're probably going to be looking at collecting information that's stored electronically, 
and I highly recommend external forensic IT teams who can assist in piecing together the story, even if the data that you're talking about has been deleted or computers wiped, an external forensic IT team can help put together the story. In our example, in the case of a potential breach of a non-compete agreement, you might want either an internal or external IT team to help you determine who that person has been emailing. Have they been sending restricted competitor information internally at the company? Have they been accessing things they haven't been accessing? And those are the types of things that an IT team can help with. That's a very good point and something to think about, frankly, in all three of these scenarios. Let me talk for a minute about the second issue raised, the CEO's alleged inappropriate relationship with an employee. This is an example, too, where different stakeholders are often implicated by your investigation protocols, whether it be compliance professionals, HR professionals, internal audit professionals, inside counsel, outside counsel. There really is a whole spectrum of potential constituents, and I would probably submit that with regard to this issue, in most instances, you would need to involve a combination of HR and legal at a minimum. It may, and frankly, I would lean toward probably, would be a situation that would require investigation by outside counsel. In that vein, to the extent that there may be any merit to this allegation, and really perhaps simply because of the severity of the alleged conduct and the seniority of the employee implicated, my preference would be to try to use an independent outside counsel to obviate any inference of, oh, you're just going to your go-to lawyers who are going to do a whitewash investigation, or this is our typical outside counsel who was the CEO's roommate, you know, any appearance of impropriety. The company is better off with a truly independent investigator who can work with in-house counsel and maybe HR or perhaps primarily HR in the absence of an in-house counsel in this space. The importance of using independent counsel to investigate matters involving executive misconduct has become even clearer in recent years with the rise of the Me Too movement and increasingly prominent claims that companies have brushed under the rug issues involving their most senior executives and allegations of misconduct by them. So what about our third issue, Anita? Revenue recognition protocols. Who and how would you recommend we go about investigating that? So when the investigation itself involves allegations against senior leadership, you need to think about who the internal contact is. And maybe senior leadership isn't the right person for the internal contact on an investigation team. In cases like that, the board, rather than senior level employees, is a potential resource. It's more likely that you're going to need board level contact when you have an allegation of revenue recognition that reaches up to the highest levels of the company. It's also, like you said, Lindsay, a good idea to get outside counsel involved as they'll also offer a true impartial perspective. I agree 100%. And actually, I would just add that at a minimum, because this allegation implicates company accounting and potential SEC reporting, if you're a publicly traded company, I would submit that the audit committee should probably be leading the retention of the person doing the investigation in order to add a layer of dedicated focus and independence. The big takeaways here from Anita's and my perspective are first and foremost, investigate all complaints. In order to make that a more effective process, be prepared before a complaint comes in with investigation protocols that are mindful of privilege issues, and once the investigation begins, also be prepared to pivot as the facts evolve, because in our experience, the facts often and regularly do change or shift during the course of the investigation. The best offense in these situations is, as they say, a strong defense. Be prepared, 
have your ducks in a row before the serious allegations come across the transom and then act accordingly and be prepared to be flexible. Thank you, Anita, for joining me today to discuss how companies can handle demand letters. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. For more information about Choate and how companies can protect their assets, please visit www.choate.com. You can also listen to additional podcast episodes in the newsroom of our website and subscribe to them wherever you listen to podcasts, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. The information presented in this recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice for a specific situation. If you wish to obtain legal advice, you should retain an attorney and explain the facts of your particular situation.